According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 12 still. I keep uh, praying to the Lord and asking for wisdom because uh, um, I want to be obedient to him and what he has for us here in this. I had not anticipated it would take forever to get through Proverbs chapter 12. and um, I want to make sure I'm not just artificially pushing things and, and getting through to the next chapter and getting through to the next chapter. Um, so anyway, pray for that. Pray that uh, the Lord would give me a peace about the uh, schedule and the pace and, and what we're doing here. All right, so Proverbs chapter 12 and looking at... Um, verses 9, 10, and 11, and then I want to get past that to look at verses 12, 13, and 14. The next poetic structure is in verses 12, 13, and 14. And uh, we can get to that. But first we're, still, we're dealing with animals, and then we're going to talk about the land. He who tills his land, it says in verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. And so the idea of being productive or being non-productive. Uh, being obedient to God's design or chasing our own uselessness. <laughs> and, and if you do chase uselessness, then you might very well catch it. And at that point, what do you have? Uselessness. And that's what it is. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so we want to be able to come to these conclusions the right way and not the wrong way, as Solomon did, uh, by trying to experience everything. Uh, we want to learn from God's design and be humble so that... Uh, these things can then be provided for us. All right, before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, ask the Father's blessing upon our time and uh, our humility before His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for Your truth, thankful for the privilege that we have to assemble together. And what a what a blessing, Father. Here we are on a Wednesday morning and we get to assemble together and study the Word of God. And I thank you for that. I thank you for each brother and sister that have the ability to, uh, and schedule and, and uh, just all your grace that lets us come together on this day. So, Father, uh, bless our time and bless our study. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is point seven in the outline, which I uh, should have for you there, the outline heading for uh, verses 9 through 11 is point 7, and it is uh, centered on these issues of domestic tranquility and the idea that we can conduct our lives according to the Word of God and have peace in our soul. We can be stable in how we live and uh, applications towards mankind and, and uh, our neighbor and, and uh, the reputation that we have in the community. Uh, applications towards animals and applications towards the land. So verse 9 is towards our fellow man. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. We dealt with those issues. Uh, last week we dealt with the animals. In verse 10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And there'll be more to say on this uh, with respect to the animals. Um, coming up in chapter 27. In fact, there's a trio of verses, verse 23, 26, and 27 that I'll 
deal with animals there. But we did go back to Genesis and spent the bulk of our time in chapter 1 and chapter 2 seeing the design of the animals, seeing how they are nephesh. Animals are nephesh even as we are nephesh. And so often we say that animals have souls just like we say we have souls. Uh, but then we stop and we, we get more precise uh, that it's probably better to say we have bodies and that we are souls. Uh, in the sense of us being trichotomous, body, soul, and human spirit. But depending on the verse and depending on the, the context of what you're discussing, uh, I think it's really nitpicky to try to uh, split hairs there and, and get, very, uh, <laughs> get very forceful on it. Uh, I'm not going to part fellowship with you if you insist on saying you have a soul. Great. Yes, you do. So do I. Um, and although it's probably more technically true to say we are souls. We are souls and we have bodies uh, when it comes right down to it. Same thing with animals. Uh, with respect to them as being nephesh, they are living creatures. And by virtue of being living creatures, the capacity of life, as it's described there in the animal realm, it does use the nephesh terminology. An animal breathes, it lives, it moves, it it uh, interacts with other animals, those that uh, it wants to eat and those that want to eat them. And uh, we have these interactions between animals in ways that, uh, that uh, are not true in the, in the plant realm. So anyway, we talk about that. We discuss the parallelism between nephesh and psuche and anima. The Greek word is psuche, it's the word for soul. Uh, it's the, the Hebrew word is nephesh, the Greek word is psuche, and the Latin term is anima. And that helps us, I think. We don't deal with a lot of Latin uh, in, in these studies, but it perhaps is very useful here because it shows us the, the, the concept be- behind soul is the concept of what animates us. What, and if you're animate or inanimate, you know, uh, the, the chair is inanimate, right? It doesn't have a soul. But I'm animate, I have a soul, I am a soul. And the idea is that we move as long as we're living. Now, clearly, when we're dead, what happens? The soul departs. The soul departs from the body. And uh, that's the definition of physical death. If the nephesh is gone, the body is no longer animated. The body just lays there, right? And decays and dies. And you want to get it underground quickly because that's what it's doing. It's returning to the dust. It's no longer animated. Okay? And uh, the process there, the whole thing of Frankenstein was to try to animate a corpse, to try to animate a body. And uh, in, in this thing that, well, that's what you end up with, right? Science fiction can't touch what God has already done. And then we ran out of time and what we concluded with last week was the, the recognition that the Bible draws an equivalency between blood and soul. In fact, so defines it that the blood is the soul. And uh, that's, I fixed the slide, it's Genesis 9-4 and Deuteronomy 12-23. All right. The blood is the soul. The blood is the nephesh. And that's why we don't um, consume the meat when we're eating animals. We don't consume the meat with the blood. And that's why too if we shed man's blood, that's an attack upon the soul. That's an attack upon the image of God. And so there are consequences if, uh, for the murderer. It's by man his blood must be shed. The murderer has to have justice executed upon him by the hands of, a, of another man, of another human, in the image of God, to defend the image of God and the, uh, the requirements that are there. So 
um, some other aspects on that. I'm not going to go back and reteach that this morning, but it is, uh, it is useful to consider the applications of blood with respect to soul and the way that the Bible puts those together. That the blood is the nephesh, the blood is the soul. And so um, it's useful for us to consider and recognize that we're not going to have all the answers, right? Because body is physical and soul is immaterial. When, we, when we're contrasting the inner man and the outer man, the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. And the inner man is the, the, the soul and spirit, right? And so we're talking about the intangible part of, of mankind is the soul and spirit. The tangible part is the body. And since blood is a body part, since blood is tangible, blood is physical, we can touch it and feel it and spill it and, and, and all that. Well then how can we then say that the blood is the soul, right? And so it, we, there are legitimate questions that remain for us to consider what is that interface? And, and it's not just Christians that are, that are exploring this. Unbelievers are exploring this. Um, atheists, God-haters are exploring this. Uh, philosophers explore, they call it the mind-body problem. They try to figure out how it is that the, is, is the mind the, uh, just the brain or, or is there a difference between the brain and the mind? And what, are, what the capacity we have in the mind for thinking and remembering and mental states, things like that, uh, these are these are, because they're all intangible, and science can't put it in a test tube. <laughs> okay, if you have a great idea, you know, well, how do you quantify that? And 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 we we know that there are such things as ideas. There are such things as memories and dreams. And to try to purely reduce it to chemical functions of of you know electronic synapses and whatever in the brain. Um, that's not satisfactory to a lot of folks. So when we talk about the soul, it's not just a Christian endeavor. That there are unbelievers that are interested in in the topic. Clearly, though, in our class, we're going to stick with the scriptures <laughs> and uh, and accept what God reveals uh, for what it is. So God says the blood is the nephesh, right? God says the blood is the nephesh. So don't eat. Uh, don't kill the animal and eat its meat with the blood. You got to drain the blood. You got to cook the meat. And that's an important principle that's given in the uh, in the scriptures. All right, um, let's go past that now. Let's look at verse eleven. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Literally, lacks heart. And we've seen this expression before in Proverbs. Uh, it comes up repeatedly. The idea of lacking heart, and uh, the Hebrew word lave that speaks of the heart. Uh, combined with the verb for lacking shows a um, a soul deficiency that that touches on insanity that uh, that uh, we want to discuss. So, next slide. Breadwinning work honors God from the heart, while vain pursuits are heartless. That's how I rephrase this verse and summarize the the doctrine that's being expressed here. Breadwinning work honors God. Now it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a literal farmer to be a breadwinner, okay? Whatever you're doing on on a vocational basis, whatever you're doing that that is productive has a a value attached to it. And uh, in that value that's attached to it, you can then exchange that value for somebody else who has produced food. <laughs> okay? You don't have to be a farmer, in other words. 
But in the ancient world, the, the bulk of the population was centered on food-producing pursuits. And up until fairly recent times in modern history, that has always been the case. And uh, much of what uh, we take for granted, uh, we, we have to stop occasionally and remind ourselves that this is unusual. This is the exception rather than the rule as far as the bulk of human history is concerned. So uh, we still talk about being the breadwinner, even if, uh, you know, just as an idiom, as a term, even if, uh, you know, whatever you do as an occupation, uh, you don't get paid in bread, okay? They don't hand you a loaf on your way out the door. Uh, you get a direct deposit by electronic transfer. And, and, you know, we're so modern in this, but the point is, you're working and you're producing something of value and you are being remunerated for that. And uh, I like what, uh, there, there's a lot of different economists I like, but Walter E. Williams talks about certificates of contribution. And he says, you are awarded with a certificate of contribution that it indicates you have served your fellow man. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what he calls money. Money is a medium of exchange that, that, is a, that represents a value, that represents uh, the accumulation of wealth. And so you, you work for a day, you get paid money, uh, and that money is a certificate of, of, of value that says you have served your fellow man. You served somebody, and because it was worth it to them, they paid you. Okay, And so now you have a credit in your hand that says you have served your fellow man. And so you can go and exchange that. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Walter E. Williams, I recommend him in uh, Economist at George Mason University and, and uh, many, many excellent writings and radio interviews and things of that nature. Well, let's stay here with the Scriptures then. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. So there is consequence to work. Tilling the land does what? It, it produces things. The, 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 the land is where food originates. And we plant seed and the crop comes up. And this is a, by God's design because this is what God has programmed creation to do. He wants all of us to see death and resurrection. He wants all of us to see something buried and something new coming up. And, and 1 Corinthians gives us that explicit doctrine spelled out, but for thousands of years before 1 Corinthians 15 was written, uh, the principle of death, burial, and resurrection has been observed by all of mankind. And so, uh, and, and we're, not planting the, the, we're not planting an apple tree, we're planting a seed. And what comes up is different from what gets planted. And that's by design, that's on purpose, see. And so we plant, we till the land, even under the curse, the land is still productive, even under the curse. Now there's also other things that come up like weeds and, and uh, thorns and thistles and there's insects and whatever else that are, uh, there were insects before the fall, but, but there, because of the curse, planting is more difficult, but planting is still productive, Okay? And so everything we eat depends upon plants. Even if you're a carnivore like me, I eat animals that used to eat plants. Okay? And that's, that's a good thing. But without plants, we're all doomed. What do we do if the earth stops producing grain? If the earth stops producing uh, vegetables, the, the, the green um, vegetable matter of planet earth, without the green vegetable matter to support us meat eaters, we're not going to last long. And then the corollary, he who pursues worthless things. You want to pursue the wind, pursue vanity, pursue worthless things. 
And uh, the more you pursue worthlessness, the less time you have to do anything productive. And so, uh, you know, this comes, this is essentially the, the, the great uh, conundrum in life. You know, you, you want to, you, are you working in order to, what are you working for? And if all your time is just work, 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 and, and you're never having any kind of enjoyment, what are you doing? And if all your time is just fun, 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 and you never, uh, you never work to, to do that, then, then how are you affording doing that anyway? <laughs> you know, uh, who's paying for all that fun, fun, fun? Somebody's paying for it. How are you eating? How are you pursuing all this fun? And then uh, obviously then we have this balance. And if we're out of balance one way or the other, are we in the will of God? What are we doing? What has God designed us to do? So we come to some, I think, some very fundamental questions uh, with respect to all of these things um, when it comes down to it. All right. So he who tills the land, does that mean we all have to be farmers? No. No. And particularly it would be, be ridiculous for us all to be farmers because of, the, of technology and the advancements of food production. And this is why I talk about how wealthy our nation is, unparalleled in human history. And even, even in recent, even 100 years ago it was far different than it is now. 200 years ago, far different than it was now when our nation was founded. See, when it used to take 80% of your population to feed everybody, that doesn't leave much left over. Right? That leaves only 20% of your population that can pursue other things. They can, uh, they can, you know, um, you know, uh, invent things and, and write things and, 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 uh, and build things and, and, and so forth because so many people are just farming or raising animals or fishing or hunting or whatever they're doing. The, the, the production of food, uh, the, the number of people it takes to produce that kind of food limits the number of people who can do other things. Right? So guess where we are now? Guess where we've come in the last 200 years? It would, it would, it would blow a gasket if you're not familiar with it. Okay? It, 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 and, and it's gone, even, even since 1980 it's shrunk again. See? But in 1980 it was down to 4%. Now it's less than 2%. Can you imagine? Under, under 2% of the population to feed 100% of the people and more. Okay? So that frees up a ton of people who don't have to work in agriculture, who don't have to work in, in food production. And in fact, if they did work in food production, it would um, be counterproductive. It would not be uh, cost effective. You'd end up with too much food and the prices would drop and with too much food you'd have too many farmers and it's not worth it because the prices are so low. That's, that's extraordinary to me. I love the fact that this all works this way. And so now, you know, uh, and in the numbers in 1980 anyway, when it was 4%, it used to be one farmer produced enough food for five people. That gives you kind of an idea, right? That means that you got one guy producing food and four guys can do other things. Now one farmer feeds 70 people, okay? And it's getting worse. I mean, it's getting larger than that, okay? And, and not only in people, but in terms of land. You know what? We can use 38% la- less land now and still feed the same amount of people. More people with less land. So don't buy it. When all the, there, there's a ton of enemies out there that are spewing a bunch of lies, right? And they've been doing it for decades. They've been talking about overpopulation. We're running out of land and, and we can't feed everybody. And what happens if we hit, what happens if we hit, you know, a billion people? We can't possibly feed that. Well, we're at seven billion now. And we're doing just fine. And we're feeding everybody with less land than we did when we had fewer people. Okay? 
And this is what God has designed us for. I think it's a beautiful thing. That human creativity is able to harness the creation. And that goes back to what we were talking about last week. We are to rule the earth and subdue it. Okay, That's our mandate. And so to me this is, this is a, a, a glory that God has, has provided for us. Alright, so let's see some other things here. Uh, along with Proverbs 12, 11, we have Acts 20 and verse 35. Let's look at some of these scriptures and we'll get through this and then maybe we can move on to the next section. Acts 20, 35. Um, this, is his, uh, this is the Apostle Paul in his farewell speech at Ephesus. And uh, we've spent a fair amount of time in this recently in introducing uh, Philippians because he was with them night and day, he was with them, he was ministering the Word of God there. And we have little hints and clues of things here that, that Luke does not write about in Acts 19. And so we, we realize that Luke just gives us a very brief sketch in Acts 19 about what that Ephesus ministry truly was. And Paul kind of spills the beans here a little bit in Acts chapter 20 uh, about how things were in this. Um, anyway, verse 29 comes a warning. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves men will arise. He's talking to these elders at Ephesus. He's talking to these overseers. From among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Timothy's got to deal with them and that's a topic in, in 1 Timothy. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And again, there's so much more here that Luke doesn't tell us in Acts 19. And verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, now this is part of his admonishment. He's leaving and he's warning them about things. First thing he's warning them about is these false teachers. Second thing he's warning them about is coveting. Having a wrong attitude towards money, a wrong attitude towards possessions. That'll tear a church apart. And he himself set that example. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs. He had to go back to tent making or whatever. He had to go back to some kind of uh, income-producing endeavor. And he alludes to that. He, in fact, he's thankful in, in Philippi, uh, when he writes in Philippians, he says that now at last you revived your concern for me. That uh, after a gap, after a period of time when Philippi wasn't funding his ministry any longer, uh, they were finally able to send additional funds. And, uh, and now at last, uh, Paul was rejoicing that now at last he was going to be free from that secular tent-making, free from that secular employment. These hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And so he set that example. The men that trained under him understood that if you're in the ministry it's not, it's not just going to be a, a gravy train. You may be working outside the church. You may be, uh, you may be bivocational. And in, in particularly where we are, I mean I think we're in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. You know, I look out across doctrinal churches across the, the country and how many 
are, are blessed as Austin Bible Church is blessed? How many are blessed as, you know, how many have uh, support their pastor 100% full time? Or he's not working outside the church? Or his wife's not working outside the church? Or they don't have other kind of income coming in by some other means? See, it's a, it's a small percentage. When you look at our Poimenike prayer list and you see the hundred and however many churches we're praying for. Okay? Understand that for what it is. And so he says, um, these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who were with me in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then I love this text. It's a, it's a powerful text. I think you, you can use this not only in church age application but in a larger sense for biblical economics. Why are we called to work? Why was Adam called to work? What's the whole point of working? And what's the design? Remember working was not after the fall, working was before the fall. It's just the fall that turned work into labor, right? Or toil. It, it, it adds that dimension of sin and hardship to what should be a blessing and what still remains a blessing. When we image God in our production, that's what we're doing. And it comes up here in verse 11. It's, it's a concept that's going to come up again in verses 12, 13, and 14. Uh, it gets built upon in the next section of Proverbs that God's design is productive and cumulative. It's not um, covetousness and swiping from somebody else. Okay, God did not design our world as a zero sum game, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna view that, and we're gonna see God's design and how we image God when we produce things. That's what He put it there for, and we'll see uh, we'll see that. So, um, the words of the Lord Jesus: It is more blessed to give than to receive. When did He say that? Is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? You know, it's colored red. Those are the words of Christ in red. Okay, well, you can't find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and it's not uh, the words of Christ as recorded by any gospel writer, but it is a saying of Jesus that Paul recalled, and and uh, likely during his three years of, of seminary training, when the Lord Himself gave Paul his seminary training in Arabia, Paul said he didn't get his gospel from men; he got it straight from the Lord, including a statement that's recorded here. I, I like that. But to be more blessed, to be more happy, to give than to receive, we understand the the value in this is what we're doing in our service as imaging God. And what we're doing in producing things. It's all a part of uh, uh, what we're called to do in the body of Christ. We do meet one another's needs. We do provide for one another. That this is is God's design. Why would we we look to the world to supply our, our needs? Okay? We shouldn't. There's a counterfeit father out there. Satan views himself as, as an alternative. He's got, a, he's got a source of provision. He would love to, to, to provide your needs and more. Okay, All you've got to do is bow down and worship him. Okay, He would love to, to supply and accept your worship. He would love to, to have you following his design and, and walking away from the father's plan. That's what he's all about. We want no part of that. And this is, uh, to me, it's a, uh, it's a great delight. That's why I'm thankful uh, that it's written into our Constitution. We do not accept money from unbelievers. 
we do not knowingly accept funds from unbelievers. We, we have grace donations and it's those that want to support the Word of God and, and, and that's what we're about. Alright, so I enjoy that as well. How about um, Ephesians? Ephesians 4.28 talking about the body of Christ here. This is, uh, you know, you get all this deep theology and doctrine in chapters 1 through 3, and then we get application in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We have the very practical expressions of the Christian walk in the body and, uh, and how we uh, love one another and serve one another. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. So it says um, in Ephesians 4, 17, uh, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You know, that unbeliever walk, you're done with that. You're saved now. That, that walk is horrible. Darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Okay? And the reason why we reject that life is not because we're better than them, it's because that's, that's just the darkened life of a life without God. Who wants that? We're now in Christ. So, I like verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. We receive Christ and then we spend the rest of our life learning Christ. Okay? Being transformed by the Word of God. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There it is. Ephesians 4.23, that's our parallel to Romans 12.2. We've got to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and we've got to be transformed. If not, we'll be conformed to this age, conformed to this world. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so, now how do we do this? Practical ways. Here's some four instances, some examples. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one to you with his neighbor, we are, for we are members one of another. This new nature we have in Christ also means we're part of a body. It means we're, we're not just living to ourselves anymore. That's how we used to live. Now we're part of a body. Now we have others to serve. Uh, so speak truth. Be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. We're members of a body and we're going to have problems with one another. How about that? Get over it. <laughs> okay. Don't let that anger be a sin issue. Don't let the sun go down on it. Let's get past that. He who steals must steal no longer. Now that kind of, doesn't that go without saying? Isn't that kind of a no-brainer? Hey, you're saved now. Give up your life as a you know, car thief or whatever you used to do as an unbeliever. You might need a change of occupation now that you're saved. But it's bigger than that. Because now that we're in Christ, we actually have our eyes open to larger issues of stealing, things that uh, we didn't really consider stealing until we got the doctrine. And then we started saying, you know what? Wow. I'm st- I've been stealing from my brother all this time. I didn't realize because I've not been contributing to the needs of the saints. I've not been serving my brother in sacrificial love. I've not been devoted to him. And because I've not been devoted to him, I've been stealing from him. 
I have withheld what he's entitled to. That's theft. And so when we learn, when we start to learn this doctrine, we start to realize how selfish we've been all along. We realize, man, I've been stealing this whole time. So he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. See, if you choose not to eat, you're stealing. Because somebody's bankrolling the, the fun and games. He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And so this is our purpose. This is what, why we're here. And it's, it's, this is true of all humanity. Gentiles, Israel, and their stewardship, absolutely. That's why it's featured in Proverbs. But it's magnified in the church age. Because in the body of Christ we have even deeper duties one to another. In Israel they wanted to work and they wanted to provide and they had duties towards their family, their clan, their tribe. Uh, They wanted to have an abundance and work and share towards family, clan, and tribe. So the principle was clearly true in Old Testament. But it's much more now vivid in the church age because now we have the body of Christ. One to another. And the, uh, the applications here, all right? So performing with his own hands what is good so that, notice, he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now that we'll have a season. We'll have a season where we'll have a need. And it may be, um, you know, we'll, we'll all have that season. All right. The um, Where was I? Oh yeah, to share with the one who has need. Well, guess what? That's, that's all of us. That's right. And so today, you might be in the first part of the verse and I might be in the second part of the verse. Today, you're the one that has an abundance to share and I'm the one that has need. But tomorrow, it could be the other way around. Tomorrow, you could be the one that has the need and I'm the one that has the abundance to share. That's great. That's what happens from time to time. That's what happens one way, it goes back and forth. That's the nature of the body. There's other applications too, but let's just leave it at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I think this, all these things, the idea of working for an abundance, the idea of working so as to have things to share, and not just subsistence, not just working for the bare minimum. We want to work and accumulate, and we want to accumulate and accumulate more. Why? So that that abundance can then be shared. And then clearly uh, there's other principles at work there as well in terms of what you invest and what you returns you can get and, and things of that nature. Just stashing in a barn and building bigger barns, hoarding is not investing. And it's not productive. And it's not taking wealth and and setting it aside for further wealth production. Jesus addressed that with the the fool. He called him a fool. He said, tonight your soul is required of you. All he was planning to do was build bigger barns so he could hoard more and not share anything. And that's not productive. It all comes back to productive. What am I doing and how is it productive? Is my land productive? Are my animals productive? 
Is my family productive? Is my church productive? Is, is, is what I'm doing productive? And if it's not productive, why am I doing it? All is lawful, but not all is productive or profitable. Okay? I might be, I might be able to do it, but why? All right, second, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, it's a love application. Backing up to verse 9, we see, As to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And how do we love one another? Just by saying so? Saying, hey, love you, brother. Okay? Well, you freeze to death because you don't have any clothes, or you starve to death because you don't have any food, or you, or whatever. So, but man, I love you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Well, okay. First love, first deeds, remember? Love is giving. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself up for her. Love is giving. And so uh, He says, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who in all Macedonia. So they're putting their love into practice. That's, That's the way it has to be. But we urge you, brethren, excel still more. And make it your ambition. I love this, because we live in a culture that redefines ambition in a lot of different ways. (laughs) Some of it's kind of pathetic. But, you know, what are your ambitions? What are God's ambitions on your behalf? Do they line up? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So be ambitious to be quiet. (laughs) Isn't that great? And attend to your own business. And work with your hands just as we commanded you. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And so this is the description of normal. Okay, Now there may be seasons. You may have seasons between jobs. You may have seasons of need. You may have seasons in between things. But what's described as the normal is that we work. We work and we produce. And we want to be able to have an abundance to be able to share with others. And this is described as proper. Again, verse 12. You will behave properly. Not living this lifestyle is not proper. All right, so we have the description there. Over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 12. And I, I get the idea that maybe they weren't catching the drift after 1 Thessalonians, he had to address it a second time. Thessalonica was not like Corinth. They weren't constantly being rebuked, and it's hard to find any kind of rebuke in 1 or 2 Thessalonians, other than the fact that they did listen to some false teachers and they got into turmoil in 2 Thessalonians, that had to get corrected. And it seems that whoever the, the idle people were, uh, they weren't responding to the, the word that they got in 1 Thessalonians, so he has to address it again. So um, verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And what's, by definition, what is that? Well, in this context, it, it, it's, it's what this context is talking about. Unruly is not is, is out of step. It, it may not be necessarily immoral. It may not be filled with sin. It's not that he's, you know, he's not 
um, living in a in flagrant fornication somewhere. It's just it's out of step because it's not according to this pattern in this context what he's talking about. And not according to the, to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Same thing he told them in, in Ephesus. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Again, in, in context. We're talking about working. We're talking about um, supporting yourself and supporting others and the, having the abundance to share. The idea of unruly and undisciplined is the, uh, the, the uh, life of, uh, is the freeloader, the one that's not, that's not uh, producing. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Whose bread is it anyway? Whose bread is it? That's right. And, and what, what has God designed for the production of bread, for the winning of bread? Okay? That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with all these issues. And same thing with animals. A man has regard for the life of his animal. Whose animal is that? Okay? It's his animal under the, the stewardship mandate that we have in, in, in creation. The fact that animals are owned that we don't abuse them, we don't mistreat them, we want to use them biblically, we want to use them productively. We want an increase to our flocks and our herds if, if you're in that line of work. Okay? But what do we do? We treat animals as playthings, as pets, as frivolities, and, uh, and then we uh, spay and neuter them so we don't have too many of them. <laughs> okay? And wait a minute, what's the purpose for these animals? Are we productive? Are we working? Are we glorifying God in the creation mandate? What are we doing? Anyway, same thing with bread. Whose bread is that? Whose grain is that? And this is God's glory, okay? Because it's not loaves of bread that come out of the ground. It's not cheeseburgers that pop up out of the ground, okay? We've got to take grains of wheat, grind them, bake them, mix them, right? We mix first, then you bake. Um, Anyway, that takes work. Wow, work's a good thing. Because work increases the value of things. Work takes things from one thing and creates something else of greater value. And, uh, and, and what have we poured into it? Blood, sweat, and tears? The sweat equity of, of increasing the value of something? I mean, do you want to walk through a wheat field and just chomp on a stalk of wheat? No, I don't. I, I much prefer that it gets ground and, and mixed and baked and, and flavored and, 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 and all the rest, okay? Anyway. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Aha! So if you're not a farmer and if you're not producing the food, there is an honorable way in which to obtain that food, and that is pay for it. That's right. And, uh, and you exchange uh, your certificates of value <clears throat> for the person who has the food and, and, and it's a win-win. And what have we just done? Okay? And this is key. You know, and I don't mind spending time on this because it's going to have value next week when we talk about nets versus ground. Um, uh, nets versus roots. Stealing something versus producing something, okay? Because in a free exchange, both sides win. Both sides win. I give, uh, when I give 
you know, uh, $5 to HEB or whatever, and then they give me a gallon of milk, they win and I win. Because I get something that to me has greater value than the, than the cash I gave them. And they get something that has greater value than the milk they gave me. And so my, my wealth accumulation has gone up. Their wealth accumulation has gone up. It's a win-win both directions. That's, that's key. And, um, and so when we are buying something, when we, when we are exchanging the, the, the money, what is money? It's a, it's a medium of exchange is all it is. It is, it, is the, it is the venue, and God designed it like this. He designed gold, He designed silver, He designed the, the, the items of value, of intrinsic worth. And we can exchange via things of worth. And, and honestly, it's a lot more convenient than sheep and goats, <laughs> you know? And uh, you can now pay with your phone. You can pay with any number of things. <clears throat> but the medium of exchange, don't confuse the, me- the, the medium of exchange with the principle. The principle is we are producing something. And in producing something we are, we are enumer- enumerated, right? Somebody is paying you for what you're producing. And if it's, it's worth it to them, or they wouldn't be paying you. Okay? And if it's worth it to them and they're paying you, great. Because now you are accumulating a medium of exchange by which you may obtain the other things that you're not producing yourself. That's, the, uh, that's God's design. That's absolutely God's design. So, um, without paying for it. And, um, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And, and, and this is uh, curious as well, because as ministers of the Word of God, he has a claim. He could claim as an apostle, he could claim as a minister of the Word of God that the laborer is worthy of his wages, that the ox, you don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and that, that uh, the, it was a principle in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood was supported. And it's a principle in the New Testament that ministers of the Word of God should be supported. That's the normal. However, Paul says, I'm not going to exercise that right. Any right that you have, any just claim that you have, you can waive that claim and say, I'm not going to hold you to that claim. Say, go to your boss next Friday and say, I waive my claim to the wages that you would otherwise be paying me. No, don't do that. Um, you worked for it, right? You worked for it, so get paid for it, okay? But you can choose to not exercise a, a right that's coming to you if you want, if you have a reason to. If there's another purpose, another purpose you might have to defer that right and to instead bless, okay? And Paul says he did this, and he did this as a teaching example as a model, to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even while we were with you we used to give you this order. And here's a proverb. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. That's plain and simple. And and there's a difference between able to work and willing to work. If you are able-bodied, God expects you to be working. 
That's what pleases Him. That's what glorifies Him. That's what pursues His plan. That's what achieves everything else down the, down the line. And uh, the, the idea of eating is, is, uh, is the, uh, the reward for working. The fact that, uh, that you can then celebrate God who gave you the health and the ability and the privilege and the blessing to work. And so, uh, sure, enjoy a fine meal, enjoy a glass of wine, enjoy everything God has provided for us to enjoy. You've got to have the capacity to enjoy it, and that capacity comes through working. Because God has designed us this way. This is, this is humanity. This is, this is God. God works. God produces. You know, yes, He rested on the seventh day, again, as a pattern. And what did He do on the eighth day? No, the eighth day went back to work. God went back and did more work. Okay, the pattern, God didn't stop working. He didn't rest forever. That's the clockmaker myth that says, well, He made a universe and then stepped back and we can do what we want to do. No, He rested for a day, then He went back to work. And He's still working. He's at work inside you and me right now to will and to do of His good pleasure. All right. So, um, if, if he's not willing to work, he is not to eat. Now we understand there's old age, there's retirement, we understand there's physical disabilities, we understand there's, uh, and, and, and Mosaic Law provided for that. The widow and the orphan were provided for. They had, they had uh, mechanisms by which to, uh, to glean the fields and to, uh, to uh, obtain their provision. But the idea of not being willing to work means volitionally rejecting the design for humanity. We are called in the image of God and you're not willing to image God because imaging God requires work. And it goes on to say, uh, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. That goes back to the previous expression of undisciplined. Um, leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And so, uh, you know, you're scarfing everybody's food and you're butting into everybody's business. Okay, that was not Bible, I, I get that, but ever heard idle hands are, are what? Devil's playground. Devil's playground, that's right. Not Scripture, but there's a concept in that. If you're not if you're not pursuing what God has for you to pursue, if you're not running with endurance the race that's set before you, what are you doing? Well, you're doing what the devil wants you to do. Your, your vanity of vanity is all is vanity. All right. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord. Sometimes we make distinctions between commands and exhortations. This is both. <laughs> Work. Work in quiet fashion. Eat your own bread. As for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. You know, and you think about it, what are you doing? Do you, are you working? Are you working for yourself? Are you working for the Lord? Are you working for others? In different ways. What, what is it that, that makes a man um, work so that he can provide for a family? So he could provide for a wife. He could provide for, ooh, this is going to come across sexist, but let's just stay biblical. Provide for a wife, provide for children, okay? Now women can also work as well, and that's Proverbs 31, okay? She was highly productive, 
in what she was doing, different venue from what the man was doing, but nevertheless, she was also productive in her sphere. The man is productive in his sphere. And, and what causes uh, the, the desire to have an excess, to have an abundance, to invest, to share? What do you do when you invest? <laughs> You're saying, hey, this is money I'm not playing with. This is money I'm not eating. This is money I'm not, you know, it's not disposable. It's not consumption. Okay? Not everything is consumption. Not everything is disposable. There's money you're setting aside and saying, no, I'm going to invest this and this is going to also work. This is also going to produce. Okay? And you make those choices. All right. So, work in quiet fashion, eat your bread, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. He's written twice on this issue. Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. There is a church discipline application and uh, this is what it comes down to. And then hopefully this will produce the repentance. Remember the shame, the sorrow that leads to repentance? This is, uh, and it's not the, it's not the he's not a, a flagrant sinner like the man of incest. Okay? But the process is similar in that the sorrow has to come to repentance so that he straightens up and repents and he gets in fellowship and he starts walking right. He says, don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so there it is there. Okay? Applications. All right, well that gets us through 12 through uh, 9, 10, 11. We'll come back next week and we'll get to verses 12 through 14 because this next paragraph builds on what we just wrapped up. Proverbs 12, 12 through 14. Let's just read it. i got five minutes left. Um, and, and we're still dealing with food, but we understand that it, in, in, in a metaphoric way it's speaking to a much larger issue. That it uses food as the, as the, the starting point, but bigger things are in view. And um, very quickly here, the wicked man desires the booty of evil men, the net, the capturing of, of something in a net. Uh, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. So on the one hand, we're using a net to capture plunder. On the other hand, we're, uh, we're farming. We're actually following God's design and we are uh, putting down roots and we are following the agricultural practice of, of production that God designed. Verse 13, an evil man is ensnared, again more nets, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. There's no nets when you're in the will of God, when you're operating according to his design. Uh, verse 14, a man will be satisfied with uh, good by the fruit of his words and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. And so that's not a contrast of, of, of evil versus good, that's actually a compound of good in both halves. Both halves of verse 14, good words and good deeds. So we have uh, food metaphors that are now speaking to the personal conduct of the wicked versus the righteous. And we'll see the larger issues that are involved when you stay in the will of God, 
when you walk humbly before Him, then these are the, these are the practical temporal life benefits. Establishment life benefits that come by living in God's design. So that's what we'll, uh, we'll deal with next week. Subpoints A, B, and C, we'll look at verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. We'll see the uh, parallel passages that address, that address this in different, uh, in different ways. And thankfully what we've already touched on is going gonna, is gonna to bear fruit because we're talking about productivity. We're talking about producing something instead of reallocating something or stealing something. Okay, And uh, shuffling chairs around on the Titanic versus uh, building some new chairs. How about building a, 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 a boat, a lifeboat to get off the Titanic? Okay, That would be productive instead of just moving stuff around. Okay, It's about producing. And that's what uh, we'll deal with here. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this study. I do pray, Father. We've got, we've got uh, men that are out of work and looking for work, and I pray for that. And other circumstances, Father, where there is a need. And uh, I thank you that uh, your grace is sufficient and that your design is so beautiful and that the privilege we have in the body of Christ to be able to love one another and serve one another is, uh, is such a blessing. Father, we uh, call upon your faithfulness to open our eyes to see these things for what they are and, uh, Father, to make the appropriate applications in, uh, in every um, set, uh, set of circumstances that you've designed. So, Father, uh, again, thank you for this time of teaching. Thank you for your faithfulness. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.